Okay, let's talk about the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization, exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement, such as publishing books like The Hill, A Memoir of War in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. The gripping book, and it is a gripping book, it follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir Helmand Province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. If you want to read more about the Hill, if you want to buy the Hill, if you want to see everything that Second Mission Foundation is up to, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. You're listening to Profiles and Havoc, and Profiles and Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. So go ahead. If you haven't been on lately, check out the pages of Havoc Journal. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. So check it out. HavocJournal.com, Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. So this week's guest, Paul Harrington, is the author of Justice or Not, a new book that is coming out everywhere. Uh, It's being published and released on Amazon, on all fine bookstores, everywhere good literature is available. Um, Paul spent the bulk of his career as a corrections officer, um, spent a full career as a corrections officer. He was um, attacked on the job a few years before his retirement in an episode of Workplace Violence. And that kind of cut short his career prematurely. Paul was an Air Force vet before then. And obviously just in here, I mean, that those bullet points alone start to hint at how much, how many experiences he's had and kind of a, um, a walk of life that a lot of people, even in the profession of arms, don't know a lot about, which is being a corrections officer. And Paul and I talked during the episode about the psychology of being a corrections officer and about the inherent toxicity of working in a prison, the mental weight that's kind of placed on you working there day in, day out, and the threats that come from everyone in a prison, not just the inmates, but the officers as well, because there is a lot of um, perversion in the prison system. And I say that as somebody that worked for five or six years in in the New York City and Los Angeles uh, prison systems. And there... prison's just an inherently perverted environment. And I don't just mean sexually, although that too. 
Um, I mean, it is just something that warps the human mind. You're dealing with incredibly devious, scheming, wicked people. And that's the best way I can put it. 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day on the job. Um, You're working long hours. You're exhausted all the time. And what that does, not just to you, but to the other people that you're working with, your peers, and the way that that perverts them and their skews their lens, skews their mindset, alters their realities, and the second and third order effects of that, the actions that that leads them to take, and then the actions that sometimes that leads them to cover up because they took, is can really have, it can spiral out of control very, very quickly. Um, I say that because we do talk about one of the, I know in my time in the prisons, um, it was always a hot button issue was female correction officers working in a male facility. Now, to be fair, when I was in a female facility, male males working in a female facility is also an issue for different reasons, um, or usually plays out a little bit differently. Um, but the case of female officers working in a male prison, um, there's a lot of uh, bad juju that kind of happens with that, uh, which you could probably anticipate. And so it, you know, I kind of tease it out of Paul early on, like, hey, how are the female CEOs there? Because that almost inevitably becomes an issue very quickly in prisons. And um, and Paul and I, you know, do talk about that a bit. I'm a little bummed about the episode. Paul has so much to say, and and you can tell that there is a seething. What's the right word? It's not resentment. That that kind of demeans it. I think there's he has a, he has a chip on his shoulder. Maybe that's the best way to say it. He has a chip on his shoulder, and justifiably so. I think anybody that's spent whatever it was, eighteen, twenty years in the prison system, is it, it, going to have a chip on their shoulder. Um, that's that's a lot of toxicity to be around for that stretch of time. And the way that his career ended is not going to you know he's not going to keep rose colored glasses on for very long talking about the prison system. Um, and I felt like we were just scratching the, the tip of the iceberg in an hour and a half. I felt like we could have done so much more time. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not going to speak for Paul. I, I feel like the book has probably gone a long way in unpacking a lot of these experiences. But I can't wait to have him back on the show and talk more about it and get more in the weeds of some of the details and some of the um, and some of his thoughts about about his life based off of how everything played out for him. Anyway, not to give away uh, you know too many spoilers of what we're going to talk about in the episode, but it's uh, it's definitely one that I, I kind of put on the list of there's unfinished business there uh, with that I'd, I'd like to talk to him about down the road. And again, if I didn't have the festival, I'd probably have him on next week and when we dive right in. Um, obviously, it's a little touch and go right now for me and my availability. And thank you guys for sticking with the podcast uh, week in week out. We're gonna. Um, you know, we're going to have on as many new guests as, as I can um, before the festival. But to be honest, I don't know how many that's going to be. I really, I tried to work around this. I tried to stockpile episodes so we'd have plenty to go and that could get me through the festival. And uh, I, I just couldn't. Um, so we ended up burning through my stockpile. And, uh, you know, we'll see. Anyway, all for a good cause because uh, I think the Savage Wonder Festival is going to end up being really cool. And uh, anyway. So, so be it. Nature of the beast. Next year, we'll plan even better. We'll make sure we've got, uh, I'm fired up and, and, you know, churning these episodes out for you guys, uh, regardless of the festival. But this week, uh, Paul Harrington is an interesting guy, and I'm glad to be able to introduce him to you 
so you guys can get to know him a little bit and check out his book when it comes out, Justice or Not. And um, yeah, I think that's all I really have to say about it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Paul Harrington's Profile in Havoc. Hey, Paul. How are you? Hi. How are you, Chris? Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, man. I'm I'm so glad you're able to do this. Thanks for taking some time on a on a Saturday um, to chat with me about this. Uh, this is um, I'm going to assume that the book was a catharsis for you to write. That it was something that you needed to get off your chest and needed to be said, and that it was kind of a passion project because you had to get this thing out there. Am I right in saying that? Yes, absolutely. Um, if I hadn't written that during that time period where I was able to uh, display my my emotions through my writing, I, I don't think I would have had that same grasp uh, this day today if I would have started that book. Interesting. So let's let's get into the the nuts and bolts of it. Um, this is. This is something that is prison, prison and the incarceration uh, rate and the nature of the prison system in America, and especially in New York, is of real concern to me. My, my interest lies, I did five years as a prison chaplain in New York many, 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 many years ago um, in the city and in, in uh, the Chinatown tombs and in, on Rikers. And um, then I did some more in L.A. years later. Prison's an interesting place to be. So let's maybe start with that. What made you pick working in the prison system as a career? Why? So one of the first lines in my book says, um, a person doesn't grow up wanting to become a correction officer. Usually it's a cop or a fireman or a doctor or something right. like that. Right. But it just kind of falls in your lap one day. You have an opportunity. You see a job posting. You might know family members or friends who have done the job or are currently still in a job, and it's something that you want to try out yourself. Um, the job does come with some pretty good benefits, at least at the time when I was in. Um, you're right, though. Uh, it's not something you just you know want to run up and say, pick me, pick me, I want to do this. Um, but you really don't know. Uh, what you're getting into until you're into the middle of it. Once that gate slams behind you, um, you're in there. So it's a cage fight. Some days are different than others. You could go in there and there'd be an uneventful day. Um, you know, uh, status quo. Sure. But then other days you go in there and we get our pre shift briefing and they're telling us, Hey, this is what's going on right now. And we're going in there and it's like, you know, you, you're you're wondering in your mind, you know, what's next? Yeah, yeah. And there is something psychologically about a gate slamming behind you, I think, every day. Don't you think? Don't you feel like that? Like that sets a tone for people that have never been in a prison. The first time they hear that clink behind them, it's like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm in here, whether for whether I'm visiting or whether I'm not. I, I'm in here now. And there's, there's there's kind of that gut check in there. Yeah. It, you know, and it's not just that that noise uh, it, of the bang, it's its that turning of the key yeah. that you hear with a lock going in. So that kind of sets in by itself. I want to 
Uh, well, first, let me, let me make sure we get we get the, the biographical element straight. In your case, what was it that drew you to the job? Was it that you looked and saw the benefits and were like, yeah, this looks like a good opportunity? Did you know people that were correction officers? What was your personal interest in the in the field before you joined? So I'm from upstate New York. And um, as people from upstate know, um, the prison system is um, a, a large employer up there. Uh, it's not something I looked at doing right from the beginning. Um, when I got out of the military, uh, I had worked um, a couple of side jobs. I stayed located upstate New York uh, when, I, uh, when I was discharged. And I decided one day I saw the CS, I'm sorry, the civil service posting in the uh, local paper. So I decided to give it a try and take the test. So here we are. Wow. Um, let, let's briefly, before I dive in, I've got so much I want to ask you about um, getting into the correction officer line of work. But let's just set this table a little bit. Tell everybody about your time in the Air Force. What did you do? What was your MOS? Why did you join the military in the first place? So we all had the choice in high school back in the 80s. I mean, even today, but more so back then. You're either going to go to college or you're going to go in the military or you're just going to stay living at home with mom and dad, right? Um, it's funny. I got a little story for you about that, though. Um, when I got out of uh, high school, I graduated my brother was already serving in the Air Force. So it was kind of my older brother, and I was the youngest of five. And my sister um, had gone in the military as well, one of my wow. other sisters. So wow. I have three sisters and a brother. And um, when, I, when I went into the military, uh, I signed up under the delayed enlistment program. So I was still actually in high school when I signed up. And I wanted to become a security police force. And when I went to MEPS, which is Military Entry Processing Station, that was down in Albany, New York. Um, when I went there, they give you the physical and they do all the different standardized tests. And right away, they uh, they tested me and they said my color vision wasn't good. So um, I, I thought that was odd because, um, you know, I worked in the dark room as a photographer in high school in the yearbook. Huh. Uh, I also, you know, being a photographer, uh, you can't be colorblind. It's, you know, when you're, when you're doing this kind of work. So I was given the option of changing out. Uh, They gave me a list of uh, different uh, jobs in the military, uh, in the Air Force specifically, that I might be able to do um, if I wanted. So I didn't like a lot of them. I didn't know a lot of them. And I was kind of put on the spot. So I ended up going in services. I wanted to study hotel restaurant management. That was sure. my other. So I, I picked that and I went in. So I ended up serving uh, from 89 to 93. Now, I graduated in June of 89. Uh, it was August 14th, 1989. With my, uh, I said my goodbyes to everybody. And my recruiter picked me up to take me to the airport to get me down to uh, to uh, Blackland Air Force Base in Texas. Uh, we got about a mile from my house. And I remember him asking me, did you get your high school diploma? I'm like, yeah, I graduated in June. He goes, no, do you have it on you? I says, oh, I wasn't aware that 
um, I needed to bring it. So we turn it around and end up going back home. I walk in the door of the house and I don't see anybody and I'm, I'm yelling and nobody hears me. So I'm like, I was gone maybe 10 minutes. And I walk upstairs to my bedroom to get my diploma. And in there, I found my parents and they're already taking down my posters. So I was like, oh, hi, how is everybody doing here? Nice wow. to see you again. It wow. was funny because they had plans for use of that room. So while I was gone, that's what they were working on. But I ended up grabbing my diploma and getting back in the car. And it was a two-day trip to uh, get down there because we went from a regional airport in Burlington, Vermont, down to, I believe it was down to uh, Philly. And then from there, we uh, stayed overnight and we packed in a hotel. All the guys that were going in, they gathered us together. I think there was three of us in one room. And we ended up going from there, uh, flying into San Antonio. And we got in there like 11 o'clock at night and we were picked up uh, by the uh, instructors and personnel. They put us on a bus and, you know, they called us the rainbows back then because everybody was wearing different colors. Right. And we weren't in that uniform yet. So when I um, got off the bus, lined up with everybody, we had our one suitcase in our hand and we formed it up. They started yelling at us. And, you know, anybody who's been in the military. Welcome to boot camp. Right. So right. that was uh, that was a little wake up to reality. They kept us up till about two in the morning, mm-hmm. doing things in the dorm, getting us all set up. Sure. And uh, fortunately, I think it was a uh, a Saturday that we had arrived, so they allowed us to sleep in the next morning since we didn't get to bed till three. I remember waking up and it was like daylight. It was almost ten a.m. in the morning, so it was like a soft wake up. It wasn't that hard and charged. Thing yeah. yeah. Right away. So, and then, and then the story goes on. Yeah. So how did you feel being in the air force, being that you wanted to go into security forces? Did you feel like you were still, you know, it was a different path, but it was a rewarding path to go into services. Or did you feel like there was something missing since you obviously ended up going into law enforcement ultimately anyway? What I should have done is not pick anything, go back to my recruiter and get tested again on my color vision. 18 years, actually, I was only 17 at the time. I, I didn't know any better. I, did, yeah. I went by myself down there to the MEP station. Um, I, I had no idea. Maybe I should have called up my uh, my brother to ask him. Uh, at the time, I kind of felt like I was backed in the corner, and you know they were telling me this is what you got to do. So I didn't want to yeah. screw that up. Yeah. But you know, I only bring that up because later on, the same thing happened with corrections. And I don't understand why, because I had said, wait a minute, I'm going to go take another test. So I went to uh, Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital in Plattsburgh, and I went to see the eye doctors there. They gave me an exam that only one in four people pass. It's a a series of pegs that are uh, colored one, they're numbered one to 50. Uh, but they they have like a pastel color and it goes through the lightest to the darkest and they put you in a room at a desk and there's usually uh, some sort of a nurse or somebody sitting behind you to observe and uh, they give you one lamp but they shut the lights off in the room so I was able to in minimal time flip those get them in order and when she checked it she came she walked out of the room came back in she goes she passed it perfectly and she said, wow. you know, 
surprisingly, only one in four people passed this. So that's when I went back so and I turned weird. those results into correct yeah. and said, here it is. And, and you know, for 20 years after that point, I was a professional photographer shooting weddings. <laughs> and until 2018 or 2017, when I got injured on a job and I had to um, uh, basically put that job on ice until it was eventually retired the next year. So, yeah, yeah that's uh, weird. It looks like it's like the universe had something else planned for you or something, because that's just weird, freaky stuff where it shouldn't have happened the way it did. So I'm guessing that the Air Force wasn't a totally rewarding experience then. Like you felt like there was something missing and it didn't give you everything you wanted. Is that right? I, yeah, I, I did like I did like the experience. Um, you know, it was great living in the dorms, meet new people, traveling. Um, I wasn't crazy about getting into that career, but I made a go of it. I mean, again, I yeah. did want to get into the business side of things as well. Mm -hmm. But then you know, it just wasn't enough action for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not that I was looking to run into a prison riot, but, <laughs> right. you know, sitting at a hotel desk doing the night audits or, you know, uh, preparing food menus and things like that just really wasn't my, my thing. You know, I, I, I grew away from it pretty quick. So yeah. I stayed the course. Now, um, into my fourth year, I had been shipped overseas to um, the Somalia uh, relief effort. They were called Operation Restore Hope. And we were in Africa for a few months. And while I was over there, um, they were already planning to shut our base down. And this was back in 93. Wow. And Plattsburgh ultimately ended up shutting down uh, in 94. Um, I think it was totally closed sometime in 95. But they, they started downsizing it right away. And um, for all first-termers, such as myself, you had the option of, of either re-enlisting into your, your what we called AFSC, Air Force Specialty Code, a.k.a. MOS. Um, you had that, but they closed, because of the downsizing, they closed all the openings. So you were either first-termers were either given the option to cross-train or be discharged. They were paying the old timers this incentive to retire and get out early. Got you. Were, I remember guys in my dorm that were old timers, people that I knew on base and base housing that were taking advantage of that program. So here I am overseas making phone calls. I only had 10 minute limits for getting put on hold by yeah. personnel or something like that. Yeah. And I'm trying to make arrangements so I could get a, a cross training field so that I could continue my service to my country. And, um, it just not being there, not knocking on that yeah, door, yeah, uh, yeah. not meeting those deadlines made it very difficult. So I ended up going out, uh, you know, being discharged in the summer of 1993. And uh, I ended up working um, for a warehouse and doing some other side work uh, for about a year before I entered into the uh, state academy. And how did you? So I want to ask you a couple things. So, first off, because you were in Somalia, um, and you got out months before the Black Hawk down and that whole incident. Did that hit with you? Were you were you like, holy crap, I was just there and this is going on. And let me tell you guys, like, were you, was there a sense of fear of missing out? And like, you know, kind of, wow, I was just there. What was that like for you? So it hit in two spots, actually. Uh, one, we weren't right there. Actually, we set up a bear base flight line up in uh, Egypt. 
So, okay. you know, but we were on um, an old air base that had been shuttered and it, it was nothing but desert and concrete. Um, so in a flight line. So we basically had to build a tent city. And it was it was like the, the pit stop before you flew into Mogadishu. OK. And um, so with that being said, um, you know, we set up a flight line and my job at the time was uh, I was driving a deuce and a half or a, a, a diesel pickup, one or the other, running out to the flight line as planes landed to grab the crew and debrief, debrief everybody, tell them what they're going to be doing as soon as they get off, have them load up in the vehicle, uh, take the air crew over to command posts and turn in their weapons and whatnot. Um, so I was doing that for quite a while before we were able to get stuff situated to set up like the dining hall and different things like okay. that. Um, so, but on the flip side of that, when I went into corrections, I ended up working with this guy whose brother was in that movie. He was not in the movie physically, but in the sense, uh, the actor played his part. Okay. Um, the, the, uh, yeah, the name was last name was Walcott. I don't remember his rank, but he was uh, chief for he, he was a helicopter he, pilot. He was a helicopter pilot yeah. of the Black Hawk, yeah. and he's the one that crashed and died. Yeah. And wow. they made a movie about Somalia, obviously. And the officer that I worked with uh, in the prison system, it was his brother. So wow. small world. Wow, world. crazy. So. It's funny because you, it seems like there was, you were just like one degree removed from having some significant emotional events, whether it was going into security forces, whether it was uh, being in Mogadishu. And it seems like all of that was leading to, and and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm wondering if that was leading to a sense of, hey, there's physically something I want to do. There's a challenge still waiting for me. And maybe did state correction seem like that might scratch that itch? Uh, yeah, I will tell you, um, once I got in the academy there, um, it, it was a bit of a watered-down version of what basic training was. Yeah. But for me, having that experience of going through that, there's a lot of uh, male and female officers that went into the academy that weren't used to that kind of regiment. Yeah. And, in fact, there were a number of them that, in my own class, that quit the academy because either they became homesick or it was too much stress on them uh, of the, the daily life of, of being um, through a, uh, a strict environment like that. Yeah. In a paramilitary uh, getting environment. The, sure. Get, yeah. Getting yeah. through the academy for me was uh, no problem at all. The testing, all that stuff, the firearms, the chemical agents, you know, the defensive tactics, all that stuff, things that we pretty much did already in the military. Yeah. Uh, How how did you feel going through it? Did you feel like um, now I'm finally getting in the fight? Did you feel like, hey, now I'm actually doing something? Did you feel like you were home or did it feel like, no, it's just another job? This just happens to be, you know, I would have liked to have done hospitality if that opportunity opened up. Like, was it all just six and one half dozen the other or was this more of a calling? I I don't think it was a calling. I think it was just happened by chance. And I didn't have real significant feelings about it at the time. Interesting. Yeah. So describe when you, what what facility did you first work at when you first got assigned? Sing Sing down in Austin, New York. Got you. Yeah. So how did that feel? Yeah. When you first went, what did did it mean to you when you first showed up there and you're at Sing Sing? What was that like? So 
um, when we got out, of, before we got out of the academy, we graduated. I looked at a map, and I, first thing we had to do was find housing down there. And they had a Bolton Board Academy with postings up there. So I called a number, and I ended up down in Newburgh. There was a, a, a CO who owned a, a home. It was a three-story home with nine bedrooms across the street from a college. So it was like a frat house in a sense. Wow. Wow. Nine bedrooms. So we had, I was number nine to go in there when I, when I came down and um, knocked on the door, woke up one of the guys. It was probably three or four in the afternoon, but he was on another shift. So right. he let me in the door and showed me to my room. And then he was like, I'm going back to bed. And, yeah. and I just kind of plopped down from there. But yeah. Um, Getting in the uh, the sense of the academy, uh, I said, well, we're going to Sing Sing. So let me look at a map, right? So I look at a map and I'm like, holy crap, this is all the way down. And you're, it's like miles from New York City, Yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I hadn't heard much about Sing Sing at the time uh, prior to going to the academy. But it's funny because I decided to rent a movie. If you can recall, going to a store and renting what they call VHS tapes to watch movies. <laughs> Yeah, I rented the fact it, you even have to say that makes me feel way too old. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Me both. Me both. Yeah. But I, I rented this movie called Against the Wall, and it was about the Attica riots. Yeah. So I said, I have to get the gist of this. Let me see what's going on. And that movie, uh, still to this day, I, I catch it every now and then on one of the networks. And um, it does, it was, it was, that movie was told very, very accurate compared to the actual when they did all the research and they they released all the information the photos and things that actually happened there i was a little i was i was i was mad i was pissed off just like i was when i was watching the movie black hawk down when they called them the skinnies when they came in and they started shooting up the chopper you know and they're coming from everywhere I, i i guess my ptsd was kicking in i had a lot of issues with that I couldn't bear, I mean, I watched it, but I hated it. And inside, I started getting infuriated. So the same thing kind of happened with me. You know, uh, when I watched the uh, the movie Against the Wall, I hadn't, I hadn't been in the prison system yet. We did a tour at Kaksaki, uh when I was going to the academy. That was like the scared straight program where yeah. they bring in, you know, the kids off the street and show them what could happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. And to say, this is what it's going to be for you. Whether or not you want to continue the Academy, you say so right now. So there were guys that quit on day two after they did those tours. They got that out of the way real quick. They were kind of thin in the herd, if you will. But yeah. um, Against the wall, seeing everybody shooting into that yard. Yeah. If you've seen the movie um, in the riot, where you had state police and sheriffs up there and even some corrections officers and they were firing long guns into that yard and shoot and, and knowing that there were some of their own in there. Yeah. I, I that left me with this this gut feeling that that the the state doesn't even look out for their own. And after 23 years of working in the prison system in New York State Corrections, I'll tell you right now, that couldn't hold more true. Huh. Let's um I want to get there. I want to get to that to that because I think that's a huge piece that people need to understand. Um, let's start at the beginning with when you started working at Sing Sing. How did you find it? Was it did you enjoy working there? Did you immediately run into issues? What was it? What was it like now going into the deep end of the pool? 
So they gave us 30 days of on-the-job training. So we went around as groups. Um, they broke us down in smaller groups. They put us with seasoned officers who were training us. And I remember the first time I was walking into A Block um, at Sing Sing. When you walk into that gate, you go in, it's like you're going in a tunnel up to a building, um, an enclosed tunnel with bars on the windows and everything. And you're going up. As soon as you walk in, you look up and there's nothing but a sea of cells, um, about a football field size, maybe a little bit smaller than that, with, I believe, um, A block might have been a little bit smaller than B block, from what I recall. I was only there for 14 months, but um, I'll tell you, uh, four or five tiers of cells with like uh, 120 cells each tier. I mean, that was a wake-up call. It really was. It it probably had been the, I'm not going to say the scariest moment for me, but the most uh, moment I've ever had in in, uh, wake-up calls. Um, cause it, it wasn't that, that gate slamming behind you with that key mm-hmm. turn, that mm-hmm. skeleton key, the giant key that mm-hmm. turns that cell. It was walking in and then all of a sudden you're, you're involved in it. You're right in the middle of yeah. it. the noise, the smell, yeah. the, the, just the visual effects and seeing that it is quite intimidating to anybody that's just walk, walking in there for the first time. How did you find the interaction? Um, with the inmates, did you immediately were you somebody that naturally built rapport with inmates? Did you try to identify like a house mouse or a number one or somebody that you could kind of talk to or a trustee or something like that? Um, what, what was it like for you? Were you like, hey, I'm just keeping everybody at arm's length and and I'm trying to stay as remote from this as I possibly can? So Sing Sing was a uh, transient facility at the time. The academy was dumping new officers in there like every other week, wow. and. Yeah, so um, these inmates knew that. They knew, oh, we got, we call this new jacks, right? So here we are coming into the facility and we're wandering around like tourists. We don't know where to find the next spot, you know? So we kind of relied heavily on the other staff that worked there to not only guide us, but to help protect us from what are we going to be getting ourselves into? Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that inmates want to do is they want to get into your head. You know, they want to play with your emotions. They want to play um, uh, to see, figure out who you are and what they can get over with on you. Um, I got to say, I I didn't really make a rapport with anyone because not only was I not there for that long, 14 months went pretty quick. uh, But I worked in different areas every day. So I might have been in a wall tower one day. The next day I was on construction. Another day I was working a two-man unit down in the medium side of uh, uh, Sing Sing at the time was called Tapan. And then you had, which was just dorms, you know, and and whatnot, open dorms. Uh, And then you had, you know, of course, you had your maximum security areas. Um, And that was good because that gave us an idea of how each area functioned. And I think that was the idea at the time for us to do so it sounds like it sounds like that was yeah that like that was dev out that way. How were you finding the other officers? Were they all uh, just uh, let's start with just demographics? Were they all kind of upstaters that were now integrating with the prison population, or did you find it was a mix of people? Um, what what did you think of the other officers? We had a mix of people from all over the state. Okay. There was even people who at the time were living in nearby Connecticut and had to relocate into New York to wow. uh, keep it up. So 
Um, we, we've kind of stuck with the uh, guys that we knew from our Academy class. Mm-hmm. And eventually we started, you know, the circle started to intertwine and we started to know other people. Um, and the, one of the things I did uh, right away, people want to go in there and do their eight hours and then leave and go home. Right. Yeah. I decided, well, I found out that we could swap. And what that means is you find another officer who is on a separate shift. So I found a guy who was on day shift seven to threes because I was three to 11s. So um, we worked a schedule of four days on, two days off. And what we did was, okay, I'm going to be off on two days. And then I come back to work on two days. And when he's on and I'm off, it what happens is he works my days that I'm supposed to be there. And I work his days. He's supposed to be there. So that turns those two days off into four days. Yeah. So you're working two double shifts. So I'm working from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Yeah. Going into the prison system, brand new with this. That was a long day, uh, yeah. I'm telling you. And I would, and, and we were traveling. Everybody was traveling too. Yeah. So I would get off. I, I would go back to Newburgh, sleep after my first shift, go back to do the second 16 hours. Then from there at 11 p.m., check out. And I would be on the highway, go all the way back upstate, yeah. not to get home until five in the morning. So I had been yeah. up for 24 hours straight on that second day with only five or six hours sleep the night before that. Sure. At sure. working a 16 hour shift. So it takes a toll on you, not just emotionally, mentally, but yeah. physically big time. And there were some people that did fours and eights. We did the twos and fours. Got you. Got you. How did you find, uh, what was the what was the split male female officer, and how did you find working with the female officers? Well, there was at the time for me there was a lot more uh, male officers. There were yeah. female officers there. The female officers at Sing Sing they handled their own. I can't say that much about Fishkill. There have been a lot of problems there. But getting back to that later, mm-hmm. um, I, I'd say everybody worked pretty well together down there. Good. I mean, we were all there for one common goal. Yeah, um, we had regulars there, guys that rode the train up from the city that lived down in in the Bronx, Queens, mm-hmm. Manhattan, or whatever, mm-hmm. and they take the train up. And a lot of people probably don't know this, but when you go on a Metro North train north of New York City on the Hudson Line, you're cutting right through the middle of Sing Sing, which which in, in New York State, I don't know about nationally, yeah. but in New York State, it's the only prison that has a train going through it. <laughs> There's big, there's concrete walls, there's fences each side. So when you're, when you're on a train, you look up, see the tip tops of the buildings and nothing but barbed wire. Um, and there was a bridge that crossed over to the lower half um, for the um, uh, access to get to the lower part of the facility. That's crazy. So for those listening, the reason I ask about uh, obviously the female officer thing, and um, I, I think unless you've worked in a prison, you can't fully appreciate um, the, the, the kind of hothouse of that environment and, and the tensions, the dynamics that naturally are going to occur between male inmates, female officers. Um, there's a lot of ways that can dev out. There's a lot of possibilities and I'm interested. That's why I'm, I'm asking Paul about it. Cause I, I, I think it's something that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention and it, it leads to can lead to some significant problems sometimes. Um, and is usually a source of a lot of intrigue, in, at least in my experience. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about where you went after Sing Sing and how that started to play out then. 
So is that when you went to Fishkill? Yeah. One thing I want to add on about Sing Sing was uh, most of the transits were only there for like weeks at a time and they were moved out. That's why it was yeah. like that whole, I don't care attitude. I'm out of here. You know? Yeah. There's not but enough time to get to in say, trouble. Yeah. I had to say 14 months because in um, January of 1995, I went in December of 94. So January 95, um, Governor George Pataki took over in New York. And at the time, he had uh, froze all movement, all hiring in New York State to get the budget, you know, straightened out. And we were told right away, oh, you're getting king slips. You're going to get laid off. And every day we wondered, you know, Interesting. Case. are we going in the, to our mailbox there? Am I going to be pulling out an envelope with a pink slip? That never happened, though. They were still running what was left over in the academy, but the academy was after that wasn't bringing in anybody new at the time. So we didn't have anybody coming behind our class to push us out. Yeah. Place once you once you take away a group of officers, like say there's 20 transferred out. Now you have 20 holes. So now you have to fill those with 20 more officers, right? Typically, unless they don't do that, then there's a lot of overtime uh, yeah. involved for the state. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah. Okay. So then when you when you finally end up going to Fishkill, that was home. That really became your spot, right? Uh, more so. Yeah. So okay. What happened was uh, I ended up liking the area uh, as much as when back in the day, I looked at that map and said, holy crap, New York City. You know, I'd never been there right. before, except when I was younger. Um, I said to myself, you know what? I like this area. I like being close down. I can go down there. And do a lot of stuff. Come back up here. I mean, mm -hmm. it was it was an hour away for me, yeah. so it was, it was a doable thing. I liked being down there. I had an apartment still upstate at the time. I kept that for about another year. Um, I was going back and forth still. Okay. Um, and then I decided to take my name off the transfer list to get back home because typically back in '95, it was about a five or six year wait for you to get back home to your home jail upstate New York. Wow. I've talked about all the way upstate, Franklin County, Clinton yeah. County, those areas, Canadian border. So uh, it did take quite a while. So I decided I'm going to take myself off the list. Um, I ended up meeting my uh, girlfriend who became soon became my wife. Uh, we had two children, bought a house. I started my photography business and planted my feet here. So here we are. So uh, before we, I want to ask about the photography business, but before I do, let, let's just set where you are now in Fishkill. How'd you like uh, the prison? I mean, I imagine it wasn't too bad because you could, you, you planted your feet there and you were making it a home base. So it must've been tolerable, but what was the dynamic like for you? What did you, what were the ups and downs of working at Fishkill? So when I first arrived at Fishkill, I was driving up to the facility and I saw inmates, um, they wear green uniforms um, out there on, on a property. They're mowing and just doing some groundkeeping. And I was looking around, like, there's no officer around him. What the heck's going on here? I'm coming from that maximum security mentality mm -hmm. to a medium. It's a medium class A. Um, and it does, at the time, it did not have uh, a max part of it, uh, which I'll get into later to tell you where, how that developed. But things changed at Fishkill. Um, when I got there, it was a learning curve. Um, but it was a little bit more of a relaxed setting. Mm -hmm. um, you're in a medium facility. It's pretty much all dorms. Um, they had about at the time 1,800 inmates there, and that's when they're double bunking. 
Uh, they were putting two inmates to a room, to a cell. And if you know how small those are, um, that made for some some bad situations uh, for the officers that had responded to incidents where they're fighting in their cell or there's someone being sexually assaulted or yeah. you name it. I mean, anything goes in there. When you walk in that gate and then it slams, it's a whole other world. It really is. And some of the stories I've come back with and told my own family, I even showed written reports. Yeah. And they just can't believe it. They're like, there's no way. But it, it's absolutely anybody who's been in there, either as a prisoner or an officer or administrator or whatever, civilian worker, they'll all be able to tell you that is the truth. You know, it, it, one of the, this is just one of my takeaways from it. I, I want to see if this, if you can relate to this or if this makes sense in your experience. Um, for me, I felt like, COs, the correction officers, probably see more horrific shit on a day-in, day-out basis than almost any other job. Now, it, it, like EMS people might see like, you know, gruesome things or what have you, but I think some of the depravity, some of the sick stuff that our society, you know, just kind of at the bottom end of our society, COs have to deal with that every day in ways that even police officers don't have to deal with. I've always been struck by the toll that I've seen it take on correction officers where I've seen their worldview get skewed or they just start to, I, I don't have a good description for it. The best way I can see it is I, I see kind of a gray pallor come over their face where it's just, they're just so used to depravity and so used that and unless there's something to rehabilitate their mindset, they're in it for long stretches and it's exhausting. And if you're sleep deprived, it's just constant flood a bad juju coming at you. Was that your experience? Did you see that? Um, or, or am I talking about something that's more of an anomaly or just particular to what I saw? We, You're right. Um, every day you go in, there's something different. Even though it's the same, it's different. Um, we did have routines. And some days it was quiet day. You went home and it was like status quo, right? Um, but then there was days you went in there and you wish you hadn't gone there. Uh, and there's no way, oh, I changed my mind. Uh, yeah. Let me back out the gate. I don't want to come in today. I mean, you're there, you're there. Yeah. Um, I could go into a whole list of things that we've seen and dealt with in there, uh, even at Sing Sing when I was there. Um, Sing Sing was a great group of people, uh, really had uh, actually fun time working there. There, mm. there were some, a lot of issues going on. There were some movies being made there at the time when I was there. Uh, C-SPAN was doing uh, a documentary. Um, you know, huh. Billy Crystal and Robert De Niro was doing a, a, a movie in there at the time. Wow. Uh, you had The Kiss of Death being filmed there. And I remember standing in line, he used to tell us, hey, who wants to be in a movie? You have to come in uniform on your day off. <laughs> so you had a few people that wanted to do it. And I kicked myself in the butt for not volunteering to get in there to do that. So but, that's why. Um, seeing, seeing the gruesome stuff, Really, um, I think we'll get into that a little bit more later as I explain different situations that happen at Fishkill um, that I portrayed in my book. Yeah. Um, but there's there's some some pretty bad stuff, and and one of the things that kind of kind of weirds out a lot of guys when they're first getting in is the fact that they have to strip another male and check his body cavities. You look at his mouth; he's got to lift his testicles. He's got to turn around, bend over, spread his cheeks. You got to look up his anus to see if he's hiding stuff in there. Um, I, I took the job for security, not to become a doctor. You know, 
I'm not a proctologist. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. I'm looking up there and it's, it's, it's gruesome, but it's gross too, in a sense yeah. that yeah. sometimes like you mistake contraband and it ended up being toilet paper wadded up from when he wiped his butt the last time he went to the bathroom. Oh, but then you yeah. find stuff up there. Instances I found drugs up, uh, ended up being cocaine. Um, when I was stripping an inmate, um, I had another one who had a rosary tied around his testicles really tight. Uh, I remember when he turned around and I had, I saw that it was black rosary and it was, the cross was just dangling as Spanish, uh, inmate, older guy. And it, it looked like he was cutting off the blood supply to him. Oh my so God. Was, yeah. It, it was some, <laughs> some of these things that go on and on. I mean, I'm sitting next to my file cabinet over here and that has every document that I've ever been involved with. Um, and my career as a state correction officer. So, you know, when I, when I was writing my book, I was able to pull out wow. forms and yeah. bring back my memory yeah. so that, I mean, it is a nonfiction book. It's a memoir. It's a true story. Um, I wanted to be able to keep the facts straight. And I also wanted to keep the timeline right because you're, you're going into a book and you're writing up your transcript and you forget something and you got to go all the way back, somehow figure out how you're going to fit it in the story and how it changes everything again. So I was able to create chapter by chapter uh, all the way till I got to chapter 39, which is the end of the book um, by doing so in, in, a, in a timeline sort of fashion um, with, with the accurate dates and times and places. Yeah. Uh, but only things that changed from that were the names. That's a huge resource to have had your files right there. That that's I can't imagine how much that must have helped and brought back the right memories and yeah, the timeline, all of that. Did you? How did you get all the files? Did you? Are are you allowed to have them? Or did you take them with you when you left? Like, how do you actually uh, hold on to them and make sure you have them for posterity? Many of our forms are uh, carbon copied. Okay. And a lot of times, if you're involved in like a use of force. Um, they have to do what they, they call a UI, it's unusual incident report, and a use of force report. Um, if there's injuries involved, especially, right? So there's a packet, there's all kinds of uh, forms that you have to fill out. And the supervisor who signs off on these gives everybody a copy of their packets. Got you. So, and if oh. I'm doing a memorandum about an incident, you know, the white copy goes to the supervisor, I keep the yellow copy. Same thing with everything from our swap forms to our personal time off and vacation sheets. Um, Jeez. you know, anything your whole that's career is there. Personnel yeah. Folder, yeah. Any, anything that's in your personnel folder, you have the right to um, go in on an appointment to personnel to review your folder and to get copies of that. Got you. So, I have everything there. So, Paul, bearing in mind all the stuff that you're now seeing, um, working as a CEO. How easy was it for you to leave your job at work and come home and be with the wife, be with the kids and have some degree of normalcy? Did you find that easy or was it a struggle? It was uh, on, on those days where everything was kosher. I mean, we went home and I always had, you know, with my side gig, my studio and whatnot, I always had something to do when I got home. Even though I was getting home at 1030, I mean, mm. uh, 1045, 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. from a 10 30 shift um you know you get home you stay up late when you're single then when the kids came along you didn't stay up so late right so right. um get up in the morning 
and either they're off to daycare or to school and the better half has gone to work and you have the morning to yourself, right? Unless you're doing those double shifts on swans. So finding it easy to come home to uh, was nothing for me because I always had something going on. I was also um, a volunteer fireman. I was uh, a yes. lieutenant for four years and then I was a captain for four years. Um, it is, uh, there is a rewards program. It's not, so in a sense, when you reach the age 55, you receive a pension from the fire district. So it, it does come with some pay in the end. And wow. there's great benefits, life insurance wow. and, yeah. and, and uh, benefits as far as like uh, gym memberships and other things like that. So I kept uh, on course with everything I could because, you know what, I said to myself, there's 24 hours in a day. Let's make the most of it. So but that's that is definitely making the most of it. Um, let, let me start with the photography. Um do you think, oh, let me let me first ask the negative question. Do you think if you had never started your photography business, uh, that the job would have gotten to you more because you wouldn't have had an outlet? You wouldn't have had a completely different mindset to shift into? I think so. I think that's what a lot of officers that like me did. Um, they went out, whether they were swinging a hammer, uh, doing uh, construction, landscaping, um, hmm. some guys were DJs, some guys, uh, were doing like, um, uh, like, uh, asphalt work and things like that. They, they had that, that thing going for them where they were able to steer, I guess, and distract themselves from anything that had happened that prior day hmm. or prior shift. Um, there were a lot of guys that did that. Then there were those officers, both male and female, but mostly male that I knew that, went home and went to the bar and did nothing but gripe, bitch and moan and groan. And to anybody that would listen to get it off their chest, I'm not talking about something that might've happened, but to them physically, but I'm talking about like either union matters, administration officials, yep. changing yep. policies, things like that. You know? So I think that, um, I think that those guys that went home and didn't have that outlet were the ones that probably suffered more. I have never heard, I'm just interested if you've ever run into anybody like this. I have never heard of a correction officer that in his off time is doing nothing but building skill sets to be a better correction officer, like going out at like, it doesn't seem like it's a job that, that people go, boy, I want more of that. I want to get better and better and be the best. Like you try to do as well as you can on the job, but when you're off, you need to decompress. You need to do something else. It seems like I never hear of correction officers going, I, I need to be the best goddamn correction officer in history. And I'm going to go to take this class on my own or do this, or are there guys like that? And if I just not met them or is that not a thing in that field? It's a thankless job. You never get an attaboy occasionally if there's something good going on, you'll get accommodations from the superintendent. But when you write a good report or when you've done your job, you don't get accolades, you don't get bonuses, you know, promotions and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know. Um, I think that in that sense, like most guys, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm jogging my memory right now. I'm trying to think back, but uh, those guys that, went home they took it out i don't want to say that they took it out on their wives uh we've had instances where things were you know divorce is a high it's a common thing it's a high rate of divorce and suicide 
in corrections amongst uh, all other law enforcement careers. Studies have shown on my research that corrections has the most highest rate of divorce and suicides per capita. I, I think everyone probably knows the answer, but I'm going to ask you, why do you think that is? Um, the stress, the PTSD, um, the depression. When you're going into work, I can remember getting off vacations, coming back after 15 days of nothing but fun and sun, yeah. right? Yeah. And you're going back in there, and as you're approaching the facility and starting to see the walls and the fences and the barbed wire, mm-hmm. and you're getting your parking spot, and, you know, I think for me it started when I was putting on my uniform at home. Uh, some guys dressed at, at work in their lockers. Some guys dressed at home and went from there. We were allowed to do either or. Um, and then you, you pick up your equipment there at the arsenal of everything uh, once you started your shift. But uh, I don't know. I, I got to say that uh, uh, I, I just, I, I'm at odds. I, I really, I, I want to say one or the other, but um, for me, I think it was a little different. I, I wonder what the difference is, and maybe you, you have an idea. Why is being a correction officer harder than being a cop? I have, I have an opinion as to why, but I'm interested in what you think, or do you think it is? So a lot of CEOs, you know, get back to the last question too. You said, you know, make better themselves, doing different things. Um, a lot of guys uh, on my job at the time in my younger years in the department use that as a stepping stone for other mm. law enforcement. So they would go yep. become a police officer, they go to the academy, go to school, get that two-year degree or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, in a sense, that's something that they did. Um, I want to say, I want to say, I think that uh, for the most part for me, um, not so much a stepping stone. I, I did take the court officer exam for New York State and uh you know, they used my veterans credits. They gave me the extra five points on the test. Mm-hmm. But um, the list was so long and they they only filled so much of it, which is typical for civil service. So they didn't get right back to me. Um, yeah. You know, if I had the opportunity to, to step out of there, I would have. But getting in there, feeling that stress, the environment, uh, the depression, going in there, it just it was very depressing. Yeah. Uh, you might see buddies of yours and, you know, you'd be at work and you joke with each other, but that was just trying to break the ice of, of that, yeah. just that environment. It, yeah. was, it was horrible. It was, there was days that you went in there and people just didn't want to be in there. There's people that had a hard time at home and they would bring that to work and then they would be in a bad mood, whether it was a supervisor or whatever. And now you as the officer had to deal with, it. now you're yeah. dealing with, now you're dealing with the problems from the inmates yeah. and now you're dealing with problems with your coworkers and you're surrounded by nothing but concrete and bars and you're stuck in there. And, mm-hmm. and then when you bring that home with you, you know, the suicide and the depression yeah. and, and the, uh, the divorce and stuff like that, it all goes almost like it's hand in hand. And I've, I myself have experienced both those situations of suicide and divorce. And there was also approximately 13 officers in my career um, in our hub at Fishkill Correctional Facility that have committed suicide. Wow. Wow. So, um, and they always said, well, what happened? We never saw it coming. 
the one thing after an incident happens, um, in most agencies, you go see the department psych uh, or a counselor and they talk to you or whatever, they clear you to go back to full duty, not corrections. What, however messed up the situation was, you had to deal with it. You're expected to go home and come back to work the next day. Paperwork's yeah. done, signed yeah. off. Okay, start another day. Let's do this again. And that totals up on people. So you bury it somewhere and then it happens again. You got to find space. Where am I going to put it again? It gets to that point where it builds up so much. Well, listen, I don't care what your title is. We're all human first. Yeah. So yeah. they never, corrections never address those. They, they obviously they address the issues with the mental health care of inmates because that was their number one. We are just a number like the inmates had a department identification number. It was what we call a DIN number. Um, and then I explained how that is formulated in my book as well. But officers have what we call a line number. We were called just a number. And yeah. that number can be filled the day after you get out of there. You're just a number to them, not a name. So they're quick to, to say, you know what, we're going to lock you out and you're going to have to go see somebody um, but guys didn't want to do that. They didn't want to disrupt their lives, their family lives, their their pay, um, their you know their livelihood, or their or for for the most part their their reputation. Because the minute you walk away from an incident and it becomes a workers' comp issue because it was work related, the facility gets documentation based on that workers' comp claim. So right away, they know, okay, you're talking about an incident to an outsider, a doctor or therapist, whatever, right? So immediately, you're kind of blackballed. Like, yeah, yeah. you can't be trusted. We're going to treat him yeah. differently now. Uh, he didn't keep, you know, what happens in here stays in here kind of situation. Yeah. You know, uh, that that thin blue line, that gray wall of silence, they call it. Um because you're not able to open up and get things off your chest uh, other than to your own colleagues who understand. Because if you try telling it to a buddy of yours down the road, like I just told you, or even a family member, they don't understand. They're going to ask all kinds of questions and they don't understand. So they can't console with you the same way another brother or sister from their job could do. Yeah. And it's, it's, it seems to me it's that unrelenting negativity that you're around. If you're a cop, you can interact with the public at large. You're not always interacting with criminals and, and people that are around criminals. But when you're a CO, that's it. That's the whole world. You're dealing with people that have, I mean, unless it's a transient facility, have generally been proven to be criminals, are thinking and plotting, and, and, and you're dealing with other COs that are you know, human beings and, and going through the ups and downs, but there's no respite. There's no relief. All you're surrounded by is the negativity. Uh, you you hit the nail on the head. Negativity. Um, I could go a million different ways with that one word alone. When it comes to Department of Corrections, um, there you know there's there's things that you know I, I'm I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling anxious because we're going down that road where I'm opening up in my mind situations that we're we've talked about or I'm about ready to talk about. So don't mind me if I. I start having these moments where I'm thinking about something because right away, I mean, I, I'm to this day, I still go to see a counselor. 
Um, you know, I have PTSD, depression, anxiety, um, stress. We're getting to that a little more later. And it's funny how all that came from the prison system, but not the military for me. Yeah. 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 That's right. Well, because you were, you were in a war nonstop in the prison system. It's a war that doesn't need declaration. It's a war that just goes on every day. And, um, and, and, and the depravity and all, and I think, I mean, again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but to me, it seems like it's just the depravity and the negativity and the toxicity, even without the violence, there's so much, there's so much, you know, that you just kind of absorb just day to day walking through the place. I want to ask when you, was it at Fishkill or Sing Sing that you had your first real use of force? When did you start really feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm really in the job, um, you know, and you kind of feel, I don't know a better way of putting it. You feel yoked to the job. Like, okay, this job is now on me. I'm no longer visiting. I'm no longer a voyeur. Um, I'm no longer a trainee. This is now my life. When did that moment happen for you? Well, that was a sing sing. Um, okay. I had been working down in Japan, the lower part of the facility on the other side of the tracks, as we called it. Um, that, that particular day, I remember the radios going off, calling for all available staff. So they had an uprising in B block. There's an A block and a B block. And B block, um, I had a roommate of mine who I carpooled with that day. Um, he's now a state trooper. Uh, he, I think he did maybe a year in corrections. And then he went to, the, uh, as a stepping stone, and then he went yep. to the state police academy. And um, yeah, his name's Chuck. And I'll just say, for instance, so Chuck was working up on one of the upper galleries and they were getting ready to break for the evening meal. When I say break, that means they're going to pull the break bar and all the cells that have already been unlocked, but they're being held locked by this long upper bar that goes the entire length, hundreds of feet, right? We're talking about. And there's there's two sides to a gallery and there's a center staircase. There are staircases on each side of that gallery that go up and down to the lower levels and up mm-hmm. a little. So he told me that as soon as they broke for chow, inmates came running out and there was a gang, there was gang violence, big time. Um, they were running up and down the galleries with shanks, shivs, what we call, but it's essentially a sharpened piece of metal, a knife, if you yeah. will, um, or a blade. They were slashing and stabbing everyone. Um, there had been over, from I remember, a couple of dozen inmates alone that had been injured. When that happened, he said he put his back to the wall. That's the only thing that we can do in a situation like that. We have our batons. Back yeah. then, we weren't carrying pepper spray or anything. But at wow. that point, you know, they say that you charge a gun, you run away from a knife. A knife, you know, the further you distance yourself from the knife, the safer you are, Right. A gun, you can grab control. You're not going to get, like, you point the barrel another way. Um, a knife, you're going to get caught. So with that being said, he put his back to the wall, and they were running right by him like this. He pulled his alarm. He called for help on the radio. And by the time they called us and we got all the way up there, I was running up numerous flights of stairs to get from the lower level up there all the way to the B-block and um, when I rolled in the B block, we were all running in there with our batons in our hand. As soon as I turned the corner to go in there, one of our sergeants was, um, he was uh, laying on the floor with his back up against the wall, holding his, his chest 
and there was blood all over his white uniform. Yeah. Uh, there was a number of officers that um, had been injured as well. Um, Sing Sing um, did have a lot of violence. I mean, Christmas Eve in 95, they had a murder. Um, inmate was uh, stabbed to death in a block. And I can remember I was working the gate that day, that evening rather. And I thought to myself, boy, we're, we're never going to get out of here now. You know, 1030 yeah. Christmas Eve, I'm getting ready to get out of there, go home. And, um, you know, investigators from the Department of Corrections, from state police, BCI, you know, the superintendent, all the administration, they're all coming in that time at night, you know, go up there for the investigation. So wow. um, there, it had its fair share of violence. And yes, not to be long winded, but that's where uh, I had my first uh, use of force at Sing Sing. How did you feel now um, actually literally getting in the fight? Did uh, Was this the first real fight you had been in in life, uh, especially when there was threat of death? Um, like, how, how did it feel? Where were your emotions at? How were you after the fact? If you don't mind, just walk us through what that was like for you. You didn't have time much to reflect on at the time when you were running to the incident. You had to picture, okay, where are we going to run into? Then you're there. Now you got to size it up. So we get in there and we're handling things. And it's just training that you had. Mm-hmm. Your your instinct is just going back to that and then acting. So, what, yes, days later, you can look back at it and say, no, this is what I thought about it. Uh, it was a wake-up call. It definitely was. Um, you know, I knew the environment we were in was dangerous. I knew that there, at any moment, stuff can go off in there. So uh, feeling different about it now, like, you know, you wonder, I mean, being in the fire department, I've been to so many uh, major accidents with fatalities. We drive a car we, on a road, we could have an accident, we get killed. We go to work. It's You could do anything today, and something happens, you know, you, you get killed. So we just go about life. We just go about doing a job. It's like, are we all going to stop driving because yeah. Uh, yeah. last week we heard about a death? Right. We still have to live our lives So and, and, and do the job. So that's that mentality i had just yeah. push forward you know and again burying all those emotions putting away somewhere's on you until it gets caught up to the point where you just implode and you you have nowhere to go but the minute you say you cry hey i'm having feelings about this the fellow officers the supervisors yeah. they look at you as being the redheaded stepchild the runt of the litter um you know can he be trusted in future incidents? Can he be reliable for help if we need somebody there? You know, that all comes to play. And there are many stereotypes in the Department of Corrections. And I've been there and done that. So, um, yeah, that being so, said, go ahead. No, no, it's all right. No, I, I don't want to cut you off. Um, so, obviously, the book is Justice or Not. Let's talk about why. Talk about the title, what that means, and why that is the subject of of summing up your career and your life in the prison system. Well, um, there's a lot of ways that could go in my book, but I kind of focused on a couple of things about that. Um, And the reason why, I mean, I didn't think about what am I going to name this book? It just came to the top of my head. 
one of the better things that I did in life was my report writing skills. I, they say you're either better in math or English, right? And writing and whatnot. So math wasn't my my strong game, but obviously report writing, English, spelling bees, stuff like that that I've done were all awesome for me. Um, I, I think that uh, I need shoot me a question again, real quick. Sorry. Well, I'm just no, no, you're good. Uh, um, so, titling the book "Justice or Not." Why okay. was that the title? Why did, what, what, Why is that the theme of, of your career in the prisons? So justice or not, um, I call it that because of my personal situations. Um, I want to talk, I, everything in that book was something that I personally had to deal with. Um, and in a prison, if you're assaulted by an inmate, um, there, back in the day, there would be outside charges uh, in most cases if the injuries were serious. If not, the inmate would get serious um, solitary confinement in a special housing unit mm -hmm. uh, for months, years. Not not years to say, but there are inmates that have up to a year in a solitary confinement, wow. maybe a little more in some instances. Yeah. But th there's uh, that doesn't um, occur anymore. The most they can do is up to two weeks. And there really is no outside charges. And the minute these inmates do something like that and they claim um, mental health uh, right away, all the paperwork you could do in the world, stuff just gets thrown away. So, you know, officers look at it like, where's the justice? You know, I was harmed, but now he walks free. Um, imagine that happening to a cop on the street. He gets assaulted to the point where he's seriously injured, has to have surgery on whatever body part it was. Yeah. And it's, it's like that today with, with bail reform where you arrest him and then he walks away and he's gone. Same thing is happening in corrections. Um, they have these reforms that are going on um, for disciplinary sanctions and the amount of, uh, of that activity you can put onto an inmate, whether it's, uh, two weeks for, um, you know, assault on staff, um, if it's uh, drug possession, things like that. They can't get any more than two weeks now. And they know now that assaulting an officer has little, little, little disciplinary issues for them down the road. So they have wow. not much to lose. And if you're a wiper in there and you're not, there's no hope of getting out. They have nothing to lose. Yeah, right. They're just right. doing it. If they right. an officer, they're trying to get him back. Then you have, you know, the gang affiliation stuff where there's like, you know, an attack on, on an officer or other inmates, if you will, for whether it's initiation or, or whatnot. So, yeah. Um, so, Paul, obviously, I don't want you to give any spoilers uh, for the book because people really should read the book. I'm looking forward to reading the book and hearing all the details of what went into your experience. But workplace violence is clearly a huge issue. And the flip side of workplace violence, it seems to me, is negligence or willful negligence, where sometimes officers might screw each other over. And, and I know that, that that toxicity that can happen among the COs is almost more dangerous than what happens with the inmates, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, typically, workplace violence will happen when 
you put two officers in an area that don't like each other, and when they're in that area, there's going to be some heads butting, and then the next day you come in, and you know the sergeant might say, "We're going to assign another officer there," and that officer's there, and that, like, say you have a what you call resource officer coming in to work a spot, and there's a bid officer there. You know, they it's like that's their territory, right? And they don't want you treading on it. So what, what happens uh, most of the times is the smallest little type of harassment to the biggest types of harassment and physical harassment as well. Um, the the mental, uh, the, the mind games, the mental anguish yeah. that you go through with this. And again, what are we in junior high here? Yeah. This is a prison. You have dangerous convicted felons in here. Mind you, there were inmates that were good, but then we had to deal with a lot of inmates. Mental health, big time at Fishkill. Drug problems all over New York State, but also big at Fishkill. The violence. It, I worked in a drug lab. I was certified Nick and Nart tester. I, I worked on, you know, uh, anybody found drugs, whatever, heroin, methamphetamines, coke, marijuana, K2. K2 is a big problem all over New York State, inside and outside the prisons. More so a few years ago, but in the prisons, it's still a huge issue. And I'll get into more about that, too, because of a homicide. But yeah. regarding uh, before we had issues with the uh, sound, I wanted to talk about the, the female on male issues. So the female officers, um, when you say, like, before I was telling you the mind games that inmates play and they get into your head and they play with your emotions. Um, you might have a female officer who might not have a significant other or, or in some cases yeah. they did have a significant other, but this is something new. And, and a female officer feels that they have that control because they're the officer and he's, you know, the inmate, the prisoner or whatever called incarcerated individuals now i guess that's the proper term but that came out after i wrote my book so i, I said inmate so it is what it is because they're all still locked up right? right but that being said um they went about their daily activities and routines but they were so sneaky about everything you never saw it that's why it was such a surprise when you heard what was going on and these female inmates uh female i'm sorry female officers with the male inmates um when they got caught, uh, the sanctions were little to none. They got locked out, suspended, but then ultimately they're allowed to leave the job by resigning. If it was a male officer at a female facility, not the same situation. And there are cases to prove that that happened in the past and still happened. Sure. Where you have inmates at a female facility, let's say Bedford Correctional Facility, right? You have male, male officers there. They have some sort of uh, in, inappropriate relationship. Then it becomes sexual. Well, the officer has that ability to control that inmate. But once you cross that line with the inmate, yeah. If, yeah. if you don't start bringing in contraband for that inmate, they're going to turn you in. And because they're a ward of the state, they can't legally consent to that sexual activity according to New York state. But 
in that sense, that officer could be charged with rape, official misconduct, a whole slew of charges. But that's just the thing. Male officers are going to be pictures in the paper are going to be yeah. locked yeah. up in jail. Yeah. going to lose their career, possibly lose their family. Female officers walk away. See you later. Yeah. Little sanctions on them. And the officers at Sing Sing, the female officers I work with there, I never heard of that happening at Sing Sing, by the way. Not when I was there. Mm-hmm. But the female officers at Sing Sing handled themselves. Like, they did their part when there was a, a problem, a situation, whatever. They were there. I'm not going to say that about – I can't put everybody in the same basket. Sure, sure. Female, female officers, the ones who weren't already involved with the inmates, problems were – if there was a situation, like in my case, I had an inmate um, on the wall to Pat Friskin. He was, you know, leaning against the wall with his hands on the wall. And and as I was getting down to his belt area, he turned on me and he started to swing. And there's a female officer right there, 15 feet away at a desk, standing at a desk. And I asked for her to help me. I had other inmates right there, probably about a dozen other inmates. And it was just me going on the floor with this inmate. And she didn't walk over to help me at all. She's told me to uh, call for help on the radio. When help finally came and we got that inmate under control, I blew up on her. And I said right there in front of everybody, including the supervisor, I didn't care about that little blue line. Bullshit. When you're not going to come to the aid of another officer, and by the way, that is in the New York State penal law, failure to aid a police or peace officer, not only is that law, we also have that as a uh, that's a rule of thumb in our department. Yeah, sure. In Department of Corrections, so it's 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 a sad situation. It's happened many times before. Um, we had videos taking of a, a use of force where you can see. The men, the men, the male officers are there doing their thing, trying to control the situation. And you have like a female officer who's standing right there, fixing her hair, watching what's going on, standing at the ready because she's got to do something. I see police officers, the same thing. I'm in many police organizations, so I'm not talking bad about anybody. But we all know whatever agency you're in, whether it's state, local, county, federal police, corrections, whoever, we all know there are bad eggs. So that's who I'm referring to. I want to refer to them and personally for me, yep. my administration. Sure. Sure. And yeah. And, and bad eggs are going to come in every shape, form, size and all that. It's just, this is happens to be a particular problem with bad female officers. Yeah. That this is, this seems to be a recurring thing. And that's what you're saying. I, I've seen it and I've heard it. And it is, a, it's a common refrain that when female officers are bad, usually that these are the ways it manifests itself. And I think that's um, there is so much more that we have to unpack, Paul. And I don't want to hold you up. You've been incredibly generous with your time today. Um, let's do this again Thanks. soon. I would love to talk more. Yes. I've got so much more to go into. Um, the book, Justice or Not. Uh, Paul, thanks, man. This was a real pleasure. That was Paul Harrington's profile in Havoc. Obviously, I think Paul and I agree that's probably going to be a first installment. So more to follow, hopefully, with that, with Paul in the dangerously near future. 
Um, check out all the uh, links in the show notes for uh, Paul and what he's up to now. Um, I haven't done the links yet, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I could say. But if his book is in pre-order right now, which I believe it is, uh, I'll have the link in there. If not, not. But I'll link to everything that you need to have links for for Paul and what he is up to. Okay, we start off this episode talking about Second Mission Foundation. I'd like to wrap up this episode by talking about uh, our other sponsor for this episode, the Veterans Repertory Theater. Obviously, the Veterans Repertory Theater is my nonprofit, but it exists to produce veteran playwrights and to celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. Events like the aforementioned Savage Wonder Festival coming up on May 29th in beautiful Sugarloaf, New York. So for those that aren't familiar with the layout of upstate New York, there are towns and then the towns have villages inside them very often. So it's the town of Chester, but it's the village of Sugarloaf. And that is where the Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center is, and that is where the Savage Wonder Festival of Veterans in the Arts will be. And it is going to be badass. We have bands, metal, country, punk. We have film screenings. We have poets, spoken word, dueling poetry. We have a dance performance by Exit 12 Dance Company, founded by former Marine machine gunner Roman Baca. Um, we have so much stuff going on. I mean, all the food trucks and vendors and all that stuff. And the Village of Sugarloaf actually moved its annual spring festival to May 29th, to the day of the Savage Wonder Festival, in order to uh, you know kind of pair our festivals together. So the whole village is shutting down. It's going to be walking only. And Sugarloaf's a very cool village. It's not just some random you know village that we just happened to you know decide to do the festival in. It's a very cool artsy village. So combining kind of the veteran world, the arts world, and beautiful upstate Hudson Valley, New York, is, I think, going to make for a really, really cool festival. So that's, that's obviously our, our major line of effort right now. You can check out all the details at SavageWonder.com. That's SavageWonder.com, SavageWonder.com. And to find out more about Veterans Repertory Theater and everything going on at VetRep, go to VetRep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org vetrep.org okay that's all you guys need to know for now if you're listening on itunes obviously we'd deeply appreciate any five-star reviews as always thanks to our producer mike neal i'm christopher paul meyer my thanks again to paul harrington we'll see you next time for another profile in havoc